0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Richard Foltz about his very new book, A History of the Tajiks, Iranians of the East, published by IB Taurus. Dr. Holtz is a professor of religions and cultures at Concordia University, where he specializes in many topics, including Iranian history, Central Asia, The Silk Road, and Religion in Iran. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great. So we're very excited for this book. And just to start, I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you how you came to this project.
1: Well, um, I usually introduce myself as an Iranologist in a very broad sense. That is to say, I'm interested in pretty much anything that has to do with um, uh, Iranian history and civilization, um, uh, in terms of the influence of Iranian cultures, um, across time and space. So that can go back from 4,000 years up to the present and, uh, as far west as the Balkans and as far east as China and India. Um,
0: Great. Thank you. And so... Um, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat um, intrigued by the title of your book, which is A History of the Tajiks, Iranians of the East. So why exactly um, the focus on the Tajiks? What brought you specifically to this topic?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, implicit in the title is an argument um, because there's uh, quite a bit of debate and discussion over what the meaning of Tajik is and who the Tajiks are. Um, Not just amongst Tajiks themselves, but also uh, amongst scholars. So I thought in the first instance that um, uh, it would be useful to try to bring a bit of clarity to that to that very uh, basic issue. And um, my answer to the question, who are the Tajiks, is that they're simply um, Iranians of the East. Um, in many senses, in many senses, uh, many respects, I think that um, Tajiks can uh, can be considered um, uh, part of the same uh, cultural unity uh, with the Persians. Uh, the Tajiki is essentially a dialect of Persian. It is not a separate language, as is sometimes um, held to be the case. Um, and, uh, uh, and and in in most respects, um, they are culturally uh, similar, if not identical, to the um, to 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 the Persians. Um, the the this division, which I think is to a large extent artificial, came about through uh, um, uh, historical uh, political events, which are for the most part pretty recent. Um, so I'm in a sense, uh, hoping to repair a bit of the damage I think that's been done by dividing these peoples, um, and, uh, separating them from, from, from their, uh, from their culture and, and, and deracinating them, uh, to some extent I'm, I'm trying to, um, to undo that, uh, as, as much as I can. Why did I get interested in this uh, in this topic? Well, as a graduate student back in well, starting in about 1990, um, I I enrolled at Harvard at the same year that Professor Richard Fry, the great American Iranologist who passed away a few years ago, um, uh, uh, was retiring and going off to begin his retirement by teaching in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, at National University there. And uh, since he still was very present at Harvard, kept an office there, participated in colloquia and such, um, I saw a fair bit of him and I was very intrigued by what he was doing. At the time, it was not, it didn't seem possible for me as a graduate student to spend time in Iran itself. Um, So I was looking at Tajikistan as an alternative to do my field work Um, In the event, it turned out that within about a year and a half, that country had descended into civil war, which meant that uh, Professor Fry himself had to cut short his stay there. And it also meant that I couldn't go there as a graduate student to do field work. So I had to go to Plan C, which was uh, to go to uh, Uzbekistan, which is what I ended up doing. Um, But meanwhile, um, Professor Fry, while in Tajikistan, uh, came upon the idea of writing a history of the Tajiks. And he told me that that's what he was going to do. And uh, a few years later, he published a book called The Heritage of Central Asia, um, which was the result of that inspiration. But as is often the case, um, as any of us who, uh, who write books know, Very Well, Um, sometimes these projects take on a life of their own and they turn out to be something very different from what we originally anticipated. And I think that was the case with his book, because it turned out not to be a book about the history of the Tajiks at all, but more, 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 more more general sense, just a history of Central Asia up to the Mongol period. Um, And so I felt uh, somewhat disappointed by that. And I, 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 it seemed to me that that book still remained to be written um this was an aspect of the persianate world that i thought had received uh entirely inadequate attention um within western scholarship at least um and uh, somebody ought to do it um uh and uh, for the next 20 years nobody did uh and uh, eventually in 2016 i was invited by professor Touraj uh, who heads the iranian studies program at university of california irvine Uh, to give the inaugural lectures um, in a new series that had been endowed by the Semnani family in honor of Richard Fry. Um, And uh, so that sort of spurred me to look back at his career, at my relationship with him. And um, it occurred to me that uh, a way to frame his career was, uh, in fact, that one could say that he uh, began and ended it as a historian of the Tajiks because his, his first project as a graduate student, as you may know, was to do a, um, a, a critical translation of uh, Narshaki's uh, History of Bukhara, uh, 10th century work, <clears throat> which he subsequently you know, uh, published after getting his PhD. Um, and so that, in a sense, was it could could be considered a kind of Landmark for the origins of Tajik culture, um, and then uh, this book on the heritage of Central Asia. At the end, uh, again coming out of his inspirate his his his, his retirement, uh, teaching uh, in Dushanbe, and 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 his uh, ambition to to write a book on the Tajiks. So so that was certainly a thread throughout his long career. He did quite a bit of work on the Sogdians and in the Sogdian language. Um, and Sogdians, of course, being the principal ancestors of the Tajiks. So um, I, th- this is uh, the approach that I took in my in my in my lecture um, at, at Irvine in his in his memory the, to sort of present him as uh, as a historian of the Tajiks. <clears throat> and that in turn sort of um, revived the question in my mind of you know when is somebody actually going to devote a monograph to that. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, maybe maybe I could do it. Um, so that's that, that, that was my inspiration. And as a result, I uh, dedicated the book to Professor Fry's memory because he was, after all, the, the inspiration for it in the first place. The other thing is that I've always been very attracted by Fry's vision of greater Iran. That is to say that, um, contrary to what we see in the media, and I think generally popular notions that restrict Iran to the borders of the present day Islamic Republic, and also tend to identify Iranian culture with uh, this sort of uh, defiant uh, political Shiism, uh, which you know, is the basis for the legitimacy of the government today. Um, Iran, of course, is much... Much greater than that. Iranian culture is much broader than that and in some ways is um, uh, not entirely compatible with it. So um, there's an awful lot of uh, corrective um, information that needs to be put out there, uh, not just within academia, but maybe more importantly to the general public sort of um Explaining uh, that what Iranian civilization really is and how great its contributions have been over the last several thousand years Um, And and I think Fry's vision of a greater Iran I'm not sure whether he was the one who coined the term or not But this certainly the the idea characterized his career that he was a he was a scholar and a and an advocate promoter of Iranian civilization in the broadest sense Um, and he was very, very uh, active in highlighting for Western readers um, the great contributions that uh, individual Iranians have made to you know, the, the 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 heritage of um, of world culture in general. So I, I, I have always been inspired by that, and um, hope to uh, take up that mantle to you know, whatever extent that I can um, in my teaching and research. Uh, so certainly, I think that. It's clear. Anybody who looks at my you know, what I've done in the last 25 years or so that um, that, that this is very much what underlies my approach. Uh, I'm looking at the the broad uh, Iranian world in the broadest sense. I've worked on Kurds, uh, uh, worked on Tajiks. I'm working now on Asets of the Caucasus. Um, so these are all not Persians strictly speaking, but they are Iranians.
0: Yeah, thank you for the answer. That's that's uh, that's a really uh, interesting and helpful story, and I'm sure our, our our listeners will agree. But one one other thing I, w- I want you to explain for our listeners before we jump into the content of the book. So you you mentioned being in Dushanbe, you mentioned being in Samarkand, which is actually in Uzbekistan. So um, I guess could you could you briefly dis- describe in today's world, where, where do Tajiks live? Are they just in Tajikistan? Are they also in Uzbekistan? Could you, um, provide a little bit more context for our listeners who might not be familiar with, um, maybe they know where Tajikistan is, but that might be the the limits of their knowledge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, again, I think in a general sense, I might characterize Tajiks as simply being Eastern Persians. I mean, They speak the same language as the Persians um, and have essentially the same culture, with the exception that um, they are mostly Sunni Muslims, whereas about 90 percent of Persians today are are, are Shia. But um, Iran only started to become Shia in the 16th century, and I don't think it became really Shia on the popular level until the end of the 17th century. So and and even as late as uh, the middle of the 18th century, um, uh, Nadir Shah uh, uh, in the 1740s um, uh, was able to um, reincorporate Samarkand and Bukhara and Herat and these uh, uh, historically Persian cities into um, once again into the uh, his uh, Iranian empire. So, so it's only been a little more than 250 years that the eastern <laughs> uh, Iranians that we call Tajiks, uh, have been separate from the Persians. And in historical terms, that's not a very long time. Um, the, the, the term Tajik has undergone quite a few, um, transformations, uh, in meaning over the last 1500 years or so, as I outlined at the beginning of my book. Um, uh, so it's a little bit difficult sometimes to be clear about what it actually means and who it refers to. But in the 20th century, uh, it refers to Persian speakers of uh, Afghanistan, uh, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, and of that population, I would say, and again, it's it's hard to know exact numbers because the censuses don't reflect this uh, accurately, but I would say that probably the uh, Tajiks of Tajikistan represent maybe one quarter of that of that population, um, there's probably twice as many Tajiks living in Afghanistan, and possibly twice as many or even more living in Uzbekistan. Um, but again, these things are difficult to know. I can tell you that when I gave a, a lecture at uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London about two months ago um, to introduce the book, uh, I was quite astonished to see a, a turnout uh, of, of probably a hundred people or more, almost all of whom were Afghan Tajiks. Uh, So somehow word got out on the Afghan Tajik social networks that this book was out and that there was going to be this lecture. And they all turned up and they were just overwhelmingly enthusiastic. They presented me with a medal and all kinds of things. So um, uh, uh, clearly for them, uh, Tajik identity is something that's associated with Afghanistan. And they're certainly entitled to 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 feel that way because uh, the, you know, the the population of Persian speakers in Afghanistan is probably half the country's population. And moreover, even for the other half, Persian is the uh, sort of prestige language. You know, I mean, the, 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 the things that go on that matter in Afghanistan are conducted in Persian, not pushed to or any other language uh, in Uzbekistan is a little bit different situation because Uh, Tajik identity in Uzbekistan has been officially and formally and sometimes uh, vigorously repressed ever since the 1920s, um, uh, such that people who were native Persian speakers uh, living in the Uzbek SSR and and later the the Republic of Uzbekistan. were discouraged, if not prevented entirely from, uh, from identifying themselves as Tajiks. So the official figures always put the Tajik population at around 4%. And I suggested already back in the 1990s, that it was probably at least 15%. And, um, I'm hearing rather convincing arguments today that it may be closer to 50%. Um, I, again, there's no way of knowing this, but um, clearly uh, the Tajik identity uh, has not disappeared from Uzbekistan. The second and third largest cities, Samarkand and Bukhara are still predominantly overwhelmingly uh, 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 Persian speaking. And I think that the Uzbek government now may be letting up a bit on its um, on its repressive uh, policies. Uh, in fact, if you go to the website of the um, Uzbekistan Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you will see that they now have a page in Tajiki, which I think is a really positive step. And um, I'm always saying that as a Canadian coming from a bilingual country that had some tensions, but uh, but the, you know, tensions which I think were effectively resolved by putting the, the two languages and the two cultural identities on Absolutely equal footing. Uh, I think that the same could be very uh, a very positive step for Uzbekistan. Why not uh, just you know take the approach of being a bilingual country? I think it would enrich uh, Uzbek society uh, uh, greatly. Yeah, the,
0: you, you made a really good point and and that's one thing that I really liked about the book is that um, in part it's an exploration of, of kind of playing around with this concept of Tajik, right? And what we end up with is, is, a, is a really rich history of, of kind of the... We can even say this predates this history that you present predates Tajiks uh, to some extent. But we also see the ways that uh, the term Tajik um, is used and then changes over time and then comes kind of back into fashion. So I think it was also a really useful way to get at this really rich um, span of history. Uh, and I really enjoyed reading that, so I was wondering if we could Glad to hear it. <laughs> I, yeah, I was wondering if we could um, kind of uh, start from the beginning and move quickly because it's a it's a lot of history, but uh, chronologically through the book. And what we start with is is in your first chapter <laughs> is the prehistory of the Tajiks. So I was wondering if you could explain explain where did um, where did these the uh, ancestors to the Tajiks, the Eastern Iranians come from. Um, when did they come to this area, which we know now as you know Tajikistan or even um, yeah east of the Iranian Empire um, or Persian Empire. Um, where did these people come from and, and what kind of time frame are we talking about?
1: Yeah, well of course it was part of the Persian Empire. Um, uh, this region was part of the Persian em- several Persian empires. Uh, Achaemenid Parthian, well, Parthians weren't Persians, but um, and uh, Sasanian empires all included much, if not all of um, the areas where Tajiks now live. Um, but prior to that, yes, I mean, any, any starting point in history is necessarily arbitrary. We just have to pick a moment and say that's our starting point. And then if we're responsible, I think, then we have to assume the responsibility of making a case for why we have chosen this point and not some other point as our arbitrary starting point. Um, So, I mean, if you were going to write a history of Tajikistan, you'd probably have to start in 1924. Uh, If you're going to, but you might say, well, I'm going to start, you know, with the first appearances of the term Tajik. Well, that comes from pre-Islamic times in the Sasanian period. This term existed, didn't mean the same thing that it means now. Um, But because I am treating the Tajiks as Iranians, uh, as an integral part of the Iranian world, uh, who share a common ancestry with all Iranians everywhere, um, I thought that um, it would be appropriate to begin the narrative um, with the earliest place and time that I think a case can be made for arguing the existence of a distinctively Iranian identity. And so I picked the Sintashta culture of the southern Ural Mountain region in western Siberia um, for the period uh, from around 2200 BCE to around 1800 BCE, a period of around 400 years, um, that was uh, characterized by this culture that was named by Soviet archaeologists in the 20th century based on their material um, uh, record in, uh, in, uh, in archaeology uh that identifies them as a specific culture and i think that most um scholars of 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 that period um uh would be comfortable at this point um identifying these people as proto-iranian speakers um uh, uh the the and 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 even even more i think that we can be fairly confident that we know the, the, the term that these people use to identify themselves, I think that they called themselves Aryo, uh, which seems to have meant we the noble people. Uh, distinguishing themselves from their neighbors whom they saw as not being noble. This is pretty common in linguistics. You see people, you know, people identify themselves as being superior to their neighbors in some way. Very often the, the term for foreigner is a term for somebody who can't speak or can't speak properly. So, you know, barbarian in Greek comes from barbar. Uh, the uh, Arabic term for Persian, Ajam means somebody who can't speak properly, uh, Slavic word for German, Nemets means somebody who can't speak. So this is pretty common. Um, and uh, so this term Arya, of course, gives us Aryan. Uh, so the um, uh, linguistic uh, world tends to refer to these people as Aryans or proto-Aryans, Uh, or um, sometimes um, Indo-Iranians, because, of course, the Aryans were nomadic to a large extent. They spread over a vast territory from uh, Eastern Europe all the way to China and eventually into Northwestern India, where they, over time, asserted themselves as the new elite. Um, We all know know about the caste system and uh, the, the... um, the, the the migrations of the Aryan peoples into um, the Indian subcontinent uh, during the second millennium BCE. Um, so of course all uh, so, uh, and we know of course that uh, Sanskrit, uh, and, uh, the Sanskrit and the language of the Avesta, um, the sacred text of the Zoroastrians <clears throat> is very close. Um, so the Avesta and the Rig Veda were <clears throat> clearly, composed at a point very, very shortly after the split amongst the tribes who migrated onwards towards India and those that migrated towards the Iranian plateau in Mesopotamia, um, which we place somewhere around the middle of the second millennium. BCE. So all of these people had common ancestor. Uh, the same is true of the, you know, the Ancestors of the Kurds and the ancestors of the assets the ancestors of the Baluch and the Pamiri peoples All of them are Iranian speakers, which means that linguistically at least um, They they have a they have a common ancestor and that can be traced back again to the Sintashti culture. We do this through comparative historical linguistics between the different languages and also the mythologies uh, the material in the Rig Veda, the material in the, uh, the oldest part of the Avesta, the Gathas, um, the, uh, the ecology that they describe, uh, the, the, the social economy that they describe. Um, and in some cases, the, uh, the, the material in the texts can actually be reconciled with uh, uh, material culture uh, as well. So I think that, that there's, there's a strong case to be made for saying that the um, peoples who lived uh, in the southern Urals 4,000 years ago and uh, produced the, 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 the material culture that has been labeled Sintashta, um, uh, I think a strong case can be made that they were um, speakers of uh, proto-Indo-Iranian language and that they called themselves Aryans. Um, They migrated uh, over the coming centuries, uh, such that they uh, came to fill the entire Eurasian steppe. Um, They are, of course, also the ancestors of the Scythians, um, the the, um, well-known mounted uh, archers that uh, gave so much trouble to the Greeks and to the Persians and to the Indians over many, many centuries. Um, uh, and uh, whose language and culture essentially uh, dominated the entire Eurasian steppe from Eastern Europe all the way to China, um, right up until the beginning of the common era. So Scythians, Saka, whatever you want to call them, um, these were Iranians uh, as well. And they have a living descendant today, linguistically and culturally, which is the assets of the Caucasus, whose language is a northeastern Iranian language um, which uh, is directly descended from the language of the Scythians, the Sakas.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> wow, well, uh, did not know that. Thank you for sharing that information. I, I didn't even uh, think about that connection. But yeah. um,
1: so, of course, the, yeah. the Tajik and the, the Tajiks uh, and the and the Asets share a common ancestor. Um, But uh, the big transformation that occurred for the Tajiks or the ancestors of the Tajiks, which did not occur for the uh, uh, ancestors of the assets is that um, the Tajiks uh, the ancestors of the Tajiks were Aryan tribes that began to mingle with the settled civilization that archaeologists call Bactriana-Margiana archaeological complex or the Oxus civilization, which was a um, urbanized and agricultural uh, society that existed in southern Central Asia, beginning more than 2,000 or four, more than 4,000 years ago, and with whom the Aryans were in contact, trading and perhaps raiding as well. And over time, some Aryan tribes settled and mixed with them and became, uh, I think, we can consider the ancestors of the Sogdians. Um, uh, so that was a transformation of, of settlement and urbanization and, and sedent- sedentarization that. The ancestors of the Assets, who were first the Sarmatians and then later the Alans, who are well known from historical sources, but they never went through that uh, sedentarization process. They came very, very late to that. Um, Secondly, um, the ancestors of the Tajiks um, uh, seem to have uh, undergone a major social disruption in the form of the emergence of Zoroastrianism. And again, um, that was a radical transformation of traditional ancient Iranian worldviews and lifestyles that the ancestors of the Ossets, you know, the Sarmatians and the Alans, did not experience. Uh, so in that sense, the the, the, the Ossets are maybe are a, a more direct window back through time to help us understand what the original Aryan society was like, because um, in uh, the, the 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 tribes that were subjected to to Zoroastrian ideas and then later Islamic ideas um, uh, experienced serious transformation of their worldviews um, when, so we have to un- we have to unpack all of that.
0: And when approximately would they have uh, come in contact with these Zoroastrian ideas? In, in-
1: well, Zoroaster, of course, himself uh-huh. was uh, Zarathustra Was of course an Aryan. He was uh, born into this traditional, uh, uh, largely pastoral nomadic society, which, like most pastoral nomadic societies, depended heavily on raiding. Um, and uh, we don't know when. Or where he lived Um, there it continues to be vociferous debate about these questions my own feeling is that on both on the historical linguistic grounds uh, well on historical linguistic grounds I think we have to place him around the 12th century BCE um, uh, although some people place him much later and others much earlier but we know essentially you know, how languages transform over time. And I think it's um, unreasonable to suggest that the Gothic language is later than maybe a thousand BCE, but it can't be as early as some people say, because it is after all different from the Sanskrit of the Rig Veda. Um, and, and we know that, that those languages, I mean, are a result of separation of the tribes that happened probably 3,500 years ago. So I think that I I feel fairly confident about placing Zoroaster um, in the 13th century or so BCE. But again, that doesn't mean that, you know, that's, there's a consensus, there's still raging debates about it, where he lived, of course, the Zoroastrian sources themselves place him in Medea. So which would be modern Iranian Azerbaijan. Which is, I think, completely implausible on historical grounds. I think that that can be explained by the fact that in Sassanian times, the, the, the Zoroastrian priesthood was identified with that region and wanted to promote it um, but I don't, think that, uh, I don't think there's any possible historical basis for that. Um, of course, the Kurds today claim Zoroaster as a Kurdish prophet. They say they're descended from the Medes. Well, they are descended from the Medes, I think. But it's, it's ridiculous for them to claim Zarathustra as a Kurdish prophet. There's no historical basis for that. Um, but the argument is out there. You have to deal with it. Um, I think that he very likely uh, was born in... The semi-rich region of what's now southern Kazakhstan, uh, northern Kyrgyzstan, uh, and probably migrated from there um, southwards uh, into perhaps Bactria. Um, but again, these are speculations, and I can't prove my case any better than anybody else can prove theirs. There's no, there's no solid evidence um, for, for for any of the various positions on this. So I, I present what evidence I have in this book, but I readily admit that it's it's far from being conclusive.
0: Okay, if we if we move forward a little bit, um, because as I mentioned, we we cover a lot of history in this book. Um, one important kind of early, I guess two early <laughs> civilizations that we see are the Sogdians, you've mentioned the Sogdians and the Bactrians. Who, mm-hmm. who were the Sogdians and Bactrians, and why are they important for understanding, understanding the history of the Eastern <laughs> Iranians or uh, the Tajiks, as it were?
1: Well, the Sogdians and the Bactrians are two Iranian-speaking peoples um, that um, uh, acquired their identities um, uh, prior to the beginning of the Common Era, um, and uh, who are the principal ancestors of the Tajiks? So, the Bactrians, of course, live further south, essentially south of the Oxus River, and the Sogdians north of it. Um, the Sogdians, again, were, I think, a blend of these migrating nomadic Aryan tribes with the settled uh, 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 culture that we call BMAC or the Oxus civilization. We don't know what language they spoke. Um, because they haven't left us any written records that we're aware of. They were very closely connected with the Elamites um, in uh, southwestern Iran and with the Indus Valley civilization in what's now Pakistan. But we don't know if they were culturally and linguistically connected with them or they just were related through trade. Um, It has been speculated, I think, um, convincingly uh, by Michael Witzel in particular, that, uh, uh, that that the um, influence of the BMAC culture on the Aryans who settled amongst them can be seen in, the term, in, in terms of loan words from what must have been the BMAC language. So for example, the, 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 the modern Persian words for camel, uh, brick, and wheat, for example, um, are all uh, suggested to be loan words from whatever the BMAC language was. Uh, And and, and this is reflecting the fact that these nomads did not keep camels. uh, They did not grow wheat and they did not build with bricks. They built with wood when they did build. Um, So these loan words would be um, a reflection of the kinds of um, uh, mutual influences that that were part of this emerging synthesis of civilization, which comes to constitute um, the Sogdian culture. Um, and the Bactrians uh, simply were uh, those Aryans who settled further south in what's now Afghanistan, um, and uh, who, uh, who whose language is preserved for us through a fairly large body of texts dating to the Kushan period, um, the first to the fourth centuries of the Common Era, um, when uh, under the influence of Hellenism in the wake of Alexander's conquests and the Seleucid Empire, um, the Bactrian language was written in the Greek alphabet, and we have quite a few texts uh, in that in that language um, <clears throat> uh, from, from that period. So it's a related uh, language to the Sogdian language. Sogdian is also left, left us quite a few texts. Um, so these languages are known fairly well. Um, uh, and again, um, given that these are the areas where Tajiks now live, we can say that the Tajiks are descended from these peoples, primarily the Sogdians and the Bactrians.
0: Right. Yeah. And and the other interesting thing, um, is that it seems for, for, for hundreds and, and hundreds of years, the Sogdians and Bactrians remained a kind of staple, um, two staple societies in this region, even as, uh, the Chinese were involved and, and of course the Persian empire in its several forms, um, here and
1: I think even um, well and, uh, and, Turks and, from the and steppe, and for and Huns and then Turks and you know I mean everybody. It's the center of the world and it was the center of the Silk Road and so of course everybody is blowing through there at one time or another. So we've got a constant mix of cultural influences um, uh, and uh, never really any major uh, empires emerging there. I mean the Kushans were I think could be considered an empire. Um, The Sogdians never had an empire. They never really had a state as such. Um, They were sort of sandwiched between the the, the nomadic Turks to the the northeast and the the Persians to the southwest. And they were actually closer to the Turks politically and economically than they were to the Persians, who were, of course, much more culturally close to them. But they were, in a sense, competitors with the Persians uh, for control of the Silk Road. So um, they they enjoyed um, uh, a large measure of protection from the turkish tribes so there's a kind of symbiosis between the sogdians and the turks which was beneficial for both of them and at the expense of the persians
0: <clears throat> and and that remains true that about the sogdians and bactrians until um the kind of um introduction of islam in yeah until the arab into the region. so could you talk about that how do we end up with the samanids who were the samanids um who who was doing the conquering of central asia during this um kind of muslim conquest yeah. of central asia
1: yeah well of course as Ferdowsi evokes so uh, vividly and painfully, uh, for, for, from the Iranian point of view, in the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings, that the, the, the coming of the Arabs was a great tragedy for iranian civilization it 's portrayed as being sort of the, the end of Iranian civilization in, 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 in some sense, and I think a lot of Iranians feel that way right up till today, um, so that the Arab conquest is seen as a great, a great national tr- tragedy. Uh, for the for, for 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 the Persians, of course, it's a good deal more complex than that. But um, uh, but uh, it's it's true that <clears throat> at least on the surface, um, <clears throat> the first century and a half or so after the Arab conquest seems to have driven Persian culture underground. I mean, we don't have um, Persian language sources from that period and. Uh, uh, Arabic language uh, becomes the uh, the elite language of the of the expanding Islamic civilization. What is sometimes not recognized sufficiently is that the expansion of the Arabic language and what is often I think to some extent mistakenly identified as Arab culture um, was 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 actually done by Persians. I mean the first Arabic grammars were written by Persian grammarians because they had to learn it and they had to teach it to other Persians. Um, and the, 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 bureaucracy was, was, uh, was, was mostly Persian, uh, and to a large extent, um, maintaining the pre-Islamic administrative apparatus of the Sasanian empire. So after that sort of brief interruption of 80 years during the Umayyad period, when the caliphate was based in Syria, uh, from 750 onwards, um, the, uh, the Islamic state was to a large extent an Iranian state and in some respects could be even characterized as a neo sasanian state. And of course, already by the 8th century, we have the Shubia movement, the movement of the Persian scholars and bureaucrats at the Abbasid court who are asserting the superiority of Persian culture um, through the translation of Great works of Persian literature, uh, uh, for example, um, to sort of show the world that, yeah, okay, Islam is great, but you know, let us not forget that the really, you know, brilliant Muslims and those who are really contributing to Islamic civilization are Iranians and not Arabs. Um, And already by by you know by uh, by the same time in eastern Iran, the fringes of the empire, where people are really quite remote from Arabic. Culture and, and don't identify with it at all. Um, you already have uh, the, 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 the founder of the, the Sephara dynasty in Sistan, Yakub uh, uh, bin Lais, who is stating quite explicitly that he doesn't want to hear poetry in Arabic, that, you know, he just wants to hear it in Persian. And so we have this beginning of a revival of the Persian culture. Notably through the revival of the language uh, and the and the restoring of it to an official status, and this is really completed in the 10th century by the Samanid dynasty. Now the Samanids were, I mean, it's it, they, they 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 are considered in a, in a sense by many to be the the original Tajik dynasty, the founders of Tajik culture and and and, and so on and so forth.
0: Um right and but, this is this know. is why you find uh Ismail Samani in in his statues in the center of Dushanbe for instance and um, every other city
1: and yeah. he's on the banknotes and you know the highest peak is Samani peak and yeah i mean it, within this you know national identity building project that tajiks like everybody else in the post soviet world have been involved in since the fall of the soviet union yes he is the father of the nation and so on and so forth and which is of course um, arbitrary, but um, uh, he certainly did play a major role in promoting this Neo-Persian civilization um, that, uh, that, that was based in eastern Iran. You know, their capital was Bokhara, and they also had capitals in Samarkand and, and, and Balch and Herat. So, um, th- th- these, you know, th- this, is, this is where the Persian revival took place. Um, and we have the reemergence of Persian as the great literary language that it's it's known as uh, today. Um, and, of course, it makes perfect sense because the further east you get, the further away you are from the Arab world and from the Semitic world. And uh, so, you know, again, by the 10th century, you have the, uh, the chief scholar of the Samanid court, Explaining in his preface to translation of the great uh, um, uh, Islamic historian and Quran commentator Tabari, uh, that we have uh, translated this book into uh, Persian because nobody wants to read a book in Arabic. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is uh, the, the Samanids get the credit, quite justly, I think, for. Reviving Persian culture and for laying the foundations of classical Persian literature. The irony is that they weren't Persians. Um, their ancestors were probably Sogdians, maybe to an extent Bactrians, possibly even Hephthalite. Um, but in any case, they weren't Persians. So what's this all about? You know, um, uh, you know, they again wrote that. Uh, uh, that the, 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 uh, the, the language of this land is Parsi, Persian, and the kings of this land are Persian kings, Moluke Ajam, which I think was false. I think that even in the 10th century, the language of the realm was still Sogdian, and that the kings were, you know, Sogdian, of Sogdian ancestry, or possibly Bactrian, maybe more likely Bactrian. But in any case, they weren't Persians. And I think that this assertion by the Samanids at the official level probably can be attributed to their ideology of, of, of trying to position themselves as the legitimate successors to the Sasanians. Because after all, the, their, their rivals were the Abbasids in Baghdad and, uh, the, and, and the Abbasid empire was essentially, as as I've argued, a neo-Sassanian state in many respects, in most respects. It was a neo-Sassanian state. So I think that the Samanids, um, I think, expressed their contestation of legitimacy uh, over the entire Muslim world by making this explicit argument. I think that it, it, it is aimed at the legitimacy claims of uh the of the Abbasids to be the sort of inheritors of the Sasanian empire i think that the Samanids are saying no we are the legitimate successors of the Sasanian empire and they even i think sort of fabricate some false connections to the Sasanians as part of this and i don't think that this has been adequately discussed or highlighted by historians up to today um <clears throat> Uh, But I think it's the only reasonable explanation for why the the Samanids were such aggressive promoters of Persian culture um, when they were not themselves Persians. Uh, So, again, the ancestors of the Tajiks uh, were not Persians, but um, Islam was brought to Central Asia to a large extent by Islamicized Persians okay by the even the 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 armies that invaded from you know by the early 8th century i think that the that the the that the soldiery was probably largely persian um and there were also um uh, uh economic connections with persia i mean there had been persian presence in central asia even in sasanian times <clears throat> and because and i think that the adoption of persian by Sogdian speakers, which was probably completed by the 11th century or so, although there is a Sogdian dialect that's still spoken in Tajikistan in some areas called Yagnabi. So it hasn't died out completely. But I think it's quite analogous to what happened in Syria and Mesopotamia and in Egypt, where, um, you know, uh, speakers of Aramaic or Coptic um, uh, gradually Uh, gave up their language for Arabic, which was actually closely related and not very difficult for them to learn and and had more advantages and so forth. Although, as we see today, uh, especially amongst non-Muslim communities in those countries, that that Aramaic is still spoken, just as a a variant of Sogdian is still spoken in in Central Asia. But most people gave up their language um, for Arabic or Persian, uh, depending on where they were. Uh, probably for largely practical reasons. Um, But this is is a process that took quite some time. And I think that the survival of Sogdian in Central Asia as a spoken language has probably been vastly underestimated by most scholars because they go according to the texts. But even the texts give us lots of hints. You know, in the 10th century, the various geographers, you know, Ibn hokal and uh, Istafri, for example, they tell us that, um, for example, they'll say things like, yeah, the people of Samarkand, you know, speak their own language and also Persian. Well, their own language must have been Sogdian or a variant of Sogdian, you know. And there are a number of references like that, you know, as late as the 10th century. So and I think that it it, it makes more sense. People don't just do a massive linguistic change overnight or within a decade or two. It takes centuries Uh, So just as the process of Islamization in religious terms took centuries, we still, I mean, we still have, you know, uh, anti, uh, very, very powerful anti-Islamic rebellions in Central Asia uh, right up till the end of the ninth century. Um, I think we have, um, I think that there's a a strong uh, evidence of linguistic survival as well. Um, that in the 10th century, I suspect that a, a, a significant proportion of the population in Central Asia still spoke Sogdian. But by the 11th, 12th centuries, I think yes, that Persian has completed the, the 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 process of you know imposing itself.
0: Sure and so the the Samanids are basically out of the picture by the what the end of the 10th century 999 okay uh, so or then
1: 1007 but you know right around there yeah that period yeah because the Turks have basically put an end to their to their rule
0: but then can you explain how who is continuing the push um to spread uh Persian language right because the Turks the Turks, <laughs> Turks. yes yeah.
1: Because Could you explain what that a little bit? The Turks were the barbarians sure. of, uh, of the time, and barbarians uh, uh, are notorious for putting an end to great civilizations, but then more often than not, they actually become the promoters of those uh, civilizations, right? Uh, and as, as sort of upstarts and newcomers, uh, the Turks, like Similar peoples, you, know, you can say the Goths in 5th century Rome, for example, um, became major champions of the, of the culture of the civilization that they have just, uh, just overcome. So you win legitimacy by showing yourself to be civilized. Well, how do you show yourself to be civilized? You do it by showing that you can speak Persian, that you appreciate Persian food and music and, and clothing and customs and everything else. This is how you show you're a civilized person. Right. So the Turks became the principal promoters of Persian culture in Central Asia and not just in Central Asia, because uh, Turkic dynasties came to rule in Iran and India, uh, where, again, they were they they were promoting Persian culture. I mean, the Mughals, who were the wealthiest, most powerful uh, state in the world by the end of the 16th century, um, were. were, were a state established by ethnic Turks from Central Asia, from Fargana region and Samarkand, who migrated to India and established this empire um, where the elite were Turks, but the language was Persian. And the culture, the court culture and the elite culture were Persian. And in fact, there's more Persian literature produced in India than there is in Iran um, because India has you know, been under so much cultural influence, uh, Persian cultural influence for a you know, good Well, for most of the last thousand years, I mean, we have chairs uh, in Persian at Oxford and Cambridge because in the 19th century, if you were a young uh, Englishman who aspired to a career in the civil service, um, uh, the best jobs were in India. And in order to get a, a job in the government in India, you had to know Persian because the British just took over the the Mughal administrative system to a large extent. And the language of that administration was Persian.
0: And yeah, and I had a question actually about um, um, this kind of idea of Persian being the the court language. I mean, we're talking about for hundreds and hundreds of years because I've often read it mostly in I would say Russian scholarship um, on Central Asia. The kind of narrative you hear is that the the Tajiks or the Persians were kind of always the cultural elite and that they were always in opposition with with the, the Turkic nomads. But do you find that, I mean, I, I
1: find it quite the opposite. I find it quite the opposite The the, the nomads, the Turkic speaking nomads and the Persian speaking settled population were in a completely symbiotic relationship. They were totally dependent on each other. And even during the 900 years that um, that Central Asia was under the rule of Turkic speakers, those Turkic speakers were utterly dependent on the Persian speaking bureaucracy and the religious elites and the, and, and, and institutions. Um, which were uh, part of the Persianized, Persianate culture. And a very good example of this is that the last emir of Bukhara, Amir Alam Khan, who was kicked out of Bukhara in 1920 and went off to spend the rest of his life, last 20 years of his life in Kabul in Afghanistan, he wrote his memoirs in Persian so even you know i mean that because again it would have been inconceivable that he write them in turkish you know cuz that's not how it's done <laughs> you know this this is this, in, in that in that context the, the language is persian it doesn't matter your ethnicity right so i mean if if again if if the 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 fact that the persian culture spread so far and wide over the course of a millennium is largely due to the to the patronage and support of of turks
0: and so maybe it's it's worth saying that it if I'm talking about these individuals it, it it's kind of you know these 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 Persians these uh Turkic peoples were all kind of mixing together is that right I mean it it's there was a, a, a large
1: degree of, of, of mixing and of course the the, the uh, up until the 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 beginning of the Soviet period the urban population of the Central Asian cities was usually um, labeled as Sarts uh, which is a word that probably comes from um, uh, Sartavada the, the, the Sanskrit term referring to merchants because these cities these are Silk Road cities I mean the economy was based on long-distance trade so the, you know the the, the um, so the 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 urban culture was largely a trade-based culture and like Many merchants in many parts of the world, they were multilingual, because you have to do business, you know, with, you know, countries far and wide. And um, yeah, right up until the Soviet period, the bulk of the urban populations of Central Asia were perfectly bilingual in Persian and Turkish. So it doesn't make sense to to construct ethnic identities on the basis of language. It's, it's not helpful. Um, ethnic identities were based on sociological issues, like whether you're a town dweller or a nomad. Uh, they're based on tribal affiliations. They're based on professional associations, um, not language. And this is the big mistake that the, that the Soviet ideologist made, which has been so damaging to Central Asian society over the past um, 100 years or so.
0: Yeah, and, and okay, I guess we'll just, uh, you know, we're running a little short on time, so I want to make sure we get to this. So let's jump ahead to the end of the Russian imperial period. Um, as far as I understand, the the Russian empire has either taken part, uh, taken control of these parts of Central Asia, or they, they have some kind of uh, relationship with the emir of Bukhara, for instance. Um, what does the situation look like for... Uh, the Eastern Iranians on the eve of the Russian Revolution? And how does the Russian Revolution or the coming of Soviet power change the situation?
1: Well, they are the elites, um, which means that from the point of view of the Bolsheviks, they are the, the major threat. And I think this explains why the Bolshevik project entailed a promotion of Turkic Identity over Persian identity, because the Persian identity was all wrapped up with the kind of institutions, traditions, and power that the Bolsheviks were attempting to overthrow and replace and render obsolete. So, any, so, 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 this this Persianate culture was was in its totality, it was dismissed by the Bolsheviks as being backward, as being, you know, um, uh, reactionary, and that's what they had to get rid of and the the, the the ambitious young um individuals uh within central asian society that that um <clears throat> elected to join the bolshevik movement and saw a way forward for themselves um as part of this uh new reality um uh, who were almost entirely i think from backgrounds that we would characterize as tajik um chose this turkic identity for these ideological reasons um, uh, this was also fostered by the fact that in the 19th century islamic modernism was being articulated largely within turkic speaking societies you have the tatar ismail gasprinsky for example a great islamic modernist uh, and also the Jadidist movement uh, and the, you know, the, the, the educational reform. This was all being done in Turkic speaking parts of the Muslim world. Istanbul was the great center for Islamic modernists. Um, so it was very easy to, you know, it, it, when when the, the decision was taken by the Bolsheviks to create these new national identities based on language, then it became quite convenient and in a way natural to promote the kind of modernism that the Bolsheviks were advocating through Turkic rather than through Persian, which was associated, again, with the very traditions and institutions that the Bolsheviks were overthrowing. So the Tajiks were the great losers in this. Um, They were completely marginalized. And Tajiks today, Tajik historians tend to see the the, the early Central Asian Bolsheviks as being Tajik traders. Again, I suggested that, that they could have ethnically be, been mm-hmm. considered Tajiks, but they made the choice to identify as Uzbeks mm-hmm. um, for what I think were opportunistic reasons. And, you're and talking... as a result, Tajiks were marginalized, they were left out of the picture.
0: And you're talking here about um, Masov, right? who... who so
1: Masov is one of the scholars sure. who makes this argument, but there are others as well. Mm-hmm. Shikuri and others have made this argument. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty much standard, the standard line in Tajikistan today. But I think contrary to the standard line in Uzbekistan, the standard line in Tajikistan is maybe a little closer to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, the centers of Tajik culture were Samarkand and Bukhara, which were quite deliberately allotted to the Uzbek SSR. In fact, Samarkand was made the first capital of the Uzbek SSR, even though the population is Tajik-speaking and it's still Tajiki-speaking today. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and even the great Tajik uh, intellectual and the advocate of the Tajiki language and literature and so forth, Sadraddin Ayni, he stayed in Samarkand almost till the end of his life. He, you know, it was quite late that he actually moved to Dushanbe. So he was advocating Tajik identity from outside of Tajikistan.
0: And do you get the sense that um someone like Aini uh would have seen a problem with this? Because I've I've often too thought about this question of okay, uh-huh. most Tajiks openly talk about the fact I mean, proudly talk about the fact that Summer Samark- they they think of Samarkand and Bukhara as being their own. Um do you think this would have been like a dilemma for someone like Sajid and Aini? The fact that he's he's advocating a Tajik national identity, but living in Samarkand.
1: I can only guess that it was. I can't, of course, pretend to have insight into his psychology. He's been dead for a long time. Um, but um, uh, I can only guess because he was a strong advocate of Tajik identity. And yet he was a product of this you know, pre-Soviet period, uh, which was a, a totally bilingual intellectual elite, uh, uh, tradition. So, I mean, uh, yeah, he grew up in a village outside of Bukhara speaking, uh, speaking Tajiki, but he, he, he learned, you know, Turkic and, and, and Arabic and Russian. So, um, you know, he, he was, he was quite multilingual. So he, he was free to choose his identity the way others like him were, and what differentiated him was that he chose to identify as a Tajik rather than as an Uzbek, like the way Faisal HaKojayev and others uh, identified, Um, and yet he wrote novels in in Uzbek as well. So he was perfectly comfortable um, in an Uzbek environment. Um, So it's yeah, he's a bit of a puzzle in a way. he, I think, also bears a large brunt of the blame for helping divorce Tajiki from Persian, which I think was extremely harmful and which Tajik intellectuals today lament as a great um, blow to their identity and their culture, severing them from the broader Persianate world. Um, And I think Ayini played a big role in that by creating this anthology of Tajiki literature and, 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 you know... um, but in any case, I mean, that, you know, he, that those were the times he was living and he probably didn't have any choice. He narrowly escaped Stalin's purges. Um, so, I mean, he was a survivor and maybe that explains partially, at least, um, what was going on in his mind.
0: Sure. And, and he would have known that many, many people who he um, associated with uh, also faced a, a much more <laughs> horrible fate. So it, mm. you know. Of course, um it's interesting that you also brought up uh kind of more contemporary Tajik poets, uh, especially from <laughs> Tajikistan. Um, I was thinking uh, who are lamenting this this divorce kind of from Iran or mm-hmm. Iranian culture because I was thinking of Laik Shar Ali, for mm-hmm. instance, is very popular yeah. in Tajikistan, and, yeah. and I can think of some specific lines where he talks about this um yeah, I guess we'll use that this moment uh. Let's talk about Tajiks today, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. um, We know that in Tajikistan, there was a very horrific and and tragic uh, civil war, Um, but things seem to be improving. So if if we talk about Uzbekistan, for instance, what do you think about, um, are things changing for Tajiks under Uh, Mirziyoyev, do you have any sense for that? I mean, looking at the three
1: countries today where Tajiks uh, have a large presence, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan, um, it's easy to understand uh, the, the response of uh, my good friend um, and colleague, uh, very well-known Tajik scholar Rostam Shakurov, who's a professor at uh, Moscow State University and comes from a, a very, very um, uh, prestigious, uh, highly respected family of, of, of scholars. Uh, In Tajikistan, he read uh, the typescript of my book and uh, he sent me an email saying, poor Tajiks. (laughs) And um, he invited me to give a lecture at MGU a a couple of months ago. And um, and, uh, I asked him, what what aspect of Tajik history would you like me to talk about? And he said, well, I think for this audience, maybe contemporary Tajikistan. I said, well, if you say so. And I ended up giving what turned out to be a pretty negative lecture. There was a Tajik professor afterwards that said, you know, as a Tajik, I can't help but feeling deeply depressed by everything that you've said. And I wish you would have said, had had something more positive to say. And then Rostam said, well, uh, ma'am, uh, can I ask you, uh, can you think of anything positive to say? And she said, well, no. <laughs> and he said, well, I can't either. So I think. The the answer to your question is that the situation of the Tajiks right now is pretty abysmal wherever they live, and there are no real signs of anything improving for them. Uh, Possibly in Uzbekistan, in the sense, like I said, now the Tajik government seems to be lightening up a bit and allowing them to express their identity more than they have before. But it's still a long way from the sort of bilingual official bilingualism that I am advocating for that for, for that country. Tajikistan is a complete disaster economically politically um, and it's it's only getting worse uh, Afghanistan I don't need to say anything about that um, so yeah it's hard to be very positive at least in the short term um, I think the last line in my book is something to the effect that um, uh, that uh, um, you know Tajiks have a great history, and they may have a great future, but they're probably going to have to wait a while. And in the first review that was published in Russian of the book by uh, my good friend Kamal Abdullayev, a very great uh, Tajik uh, modern historian, he said, uh, Professor Foltz says that we may have to wait a while. Well, we Tajiks, we are used to waiting. (laughs)
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, uh, thank you again, uh, Professor Foltz. We're very—I ha- was very happy to uh, hear you talk about this book. It's a wonderful contribution to the field. I'm looking forward to see how others respond to the book. Um, before I let you go, are there any uh, current projects you're working on that you want to uh, share yes, with us? Yes, I've
1: just. Yeah, I've just spent a month in Ossetia, both north and south, and I I mentioned them before. Um, I think that there's a great lack of attention to that part of the Iranian world. Within the field of Iranian studies, there is almost nothing in any Western language about Ossetian history and culture. And given the the importance and the uniqueness of the Asetian aspect um, of uh, Iranian civilization. I think there's really a crying need to try and fill in that gap. So um, I've uh, I've already uh, got about three or four journal articles uh, that are under review right now on different aspects of Asetian culture. Uh, and I, I, I hope within the next couple of years to produce a, a book, a general treatment of the Asets, similar to what I did for the Tajiks. So uh, if uh, the uh, Tajiks are the Iranians of the East, maybe the subtitle for the next book can be you know, the assets, Iranians of the West. So that's what I'm, I'm going to be up to for the, for the next few years, at least.
0: Great. Thank you for sharing. We look really fo- we'll look forward to uh, to seeing that new book. Great. great.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest in the the book and uh, the the chance that you've given us to, to talk about it for your audience.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much.